As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. Today on the show, we have senior editor at the Daily Beast and host of the podcast Girl Friday, Aaron Ryan. We also have the man who played Donald Trump in debate prep, uh, former Hillary Clinton advisor, Philippe Rhinus. Friend of the pod. Friend of everybody. Before we start, thank you, everyone. Yeah, big thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, we started over with a new name for the show, which... Even with a name as awesome as Pod Save America, is not easy to do because no one knows where to find you. You have no subscribers. You have nothing. But you guys all told your friends and family about us. Some of you even stole their phones and subscribed for them in a very morally and legally questionable way, which we love. Keep tweeting that at us. We will retweet you. Um, even more amazing is we begged you guys to leave us five-star reviews because we're pathetic, and like 3,300 people did so. And that is amazing for the show and our ability to, to stay at number one on the iTunes rankings, but it also makes me feel like... This is a group of people that can get engaged and do some really cool, great stuff in terms of taking political action. So thank you again. I also think like you're doing it because you want the show to succeed, and that's for you as much as us. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you, everyone. I have a role to play here, guys. Yeah, Please, hour is over. <laughs> Please rate and review Pod Save America in the iTunes store. Okay. Um, a bunch of other people are engaged in something much more important. Ooh, uh, the fight to save the Affordable Care Act. Yes. Um, yesterday... Our first stand rallies uh, were held all across the country. It was organized by Bernie Sanders' group, also featured politicians from Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Tim Kaine, Chris Van Hollen. And you had all these rallies, like hundreds to thousands of people showed up, um, which is great news. This stuff is is, is working. Yeah. Um, there was a great story yesterday that a, um, a crowd of over 100 people showed up at uh, Representative Mike Kaufman's constituent meeting. He is a Republican representative out of Colorado, uh, represents Aurora. And this he was supposed to have this small constituent meeting with a couple people, and a hundred people showed up to complain and uh, yell at him about his plan to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Um, someone got some great footage of so Mike Hoffman uh, sneaking out the back door <laughs> of the meeting before he could meet with everyone. Uh, this morning, there was a uh, story in Bloomberg uh, Representative Richard Hudson of North Carolina said Friday, there is a lot of angst in our state over an Obamacare repeal. This is a Republican. Here's a quote. My constituents are freaking out about commercials they are seeing on TV about how they are going to lose health care, he said. It's working. They are feeling this pressure. So that's amazing. Look, preventing these uh, people from repealing Obamacare is going to be very, very hard. But this is like our one yeah. lever here. And, and you know, we learned a lot from the Tea Party, and I think that's a good thing. And like, we are bringing pressure to bear, and it's making a difference. Yeah. The, the moral of the story is that members of Congress scare easily. A few dozen people showing up at an event or at their office or calling them makes a big difference. And like, that's what we learned from 2009 uh, during the Tea Party rallies. You know, at the beginning of that effort, people made fun of it and they called them teabaggers and they dismissed it. And then before you knew it, Fox News had picked up the cause and Glenn Beck was, was talking about this every day. And there's a million or two million people on the mall. So these things can grow and become hugely politically impactful if you stick with it. Yeah. And you, like you said, love it. 
this is going to be really hard, and it's unclear whether we'll succeed or not. But that's no reason not to try and be as loud as possible. Yep. I mean, I just, we just gotta you gotta fight through the the cynicism Look, here like, on this. It is working. I mean, <laughs> we we don't know what the end result will be, but it is already making a difference, and we're just getting started. Well, it's it, it may be making a difference because someone has noticed all these headlines. Yes, yeah. and his name is Donald Trump. <laughs> and last his night, Google alert is going bananas. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, this is only someone who is affected by what he sees on cable chirons, and we finally reached the cable chiron status for the Affordable Care Act rallies. So uh, last night he uh, did an interview with uh, Robert Costa of the Washington Post um, where Trump said his plan will be revealed soon. His plan for (laughs) Obamacare replacement, it's going to be terrific, and he said it's going to be insurance for everybody, in quotes. Uh, There'll be, he said, everyone will have insurance, and there'll be lower deductibles, it'll be cheaper insurance, better deductibles, but it'll be better. That's all he said, basically. So no one knows what this means. No one, no one ever knows Donald what Trump it means. Donald Trump doesn't know what it right. means. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but look, if he, do, if, if he stays true to what he just said, you know, you basically can't have that kind of Obamacare replacement without it being Obamacare, but just more money spent on the program. Right. And so we're about to see how uh, we're about to see whether Paul Ryan will stomach this or not, or if it's just bullshit, which, you know, yeah. that's my guess. But who knows? He's feeling the heat, and you know it will be very interesting to see where this goes. The one area where I I have pray our president elect succeeds is he says he's going to force drug companies to lower prices and negotiate directly. I hope he bullies the shit out of pharma and all these other drug companies, but he's going to run into a big uh, stumbling block of his own party, which has historically opposed this, and then like the 11 million lobbyists in Washington that are working for these guys. But Godspeed, sir. Yeah, I mean, we've been trying to do this forever. So if he wants to work with Democrats on this, great. Tweet about it. If Paul Ryan wants to just like give up all of his economic conservative principles to support... uh, (laughs) Direct negotiation with drug prices. Better way. Yeah, Hashtag better way. Paul Ryan. Obamacare with a public option? Okay, sure. Cool. Sure, Donald Trump. <laughs> Donald Trump brought us if, if, Yeah, if, if Donald Trump wants to add the public option to Obamacare and increase the level of subsidies so more people are covered and call it Trumpcare, all the power yeah, to him. We, you know what we'll have to do, though? We'll have to be like, pretend we're super angry about it. <laughs> <laughs> I won't even be angry. Look, I just want people, I, to, like, I want people to survive and have health insurance. We should also be clear, like, this is a flight of fancy. Donald Trump is a liar making it up as he goes. Mm-hmm. So, uh yeah, I think that we have some uh, more concrete and uh, terrible things coming our way. But so, in this fight. Bottom line here: uh, continue calling. What? Your... That was funny. Wait, it? Tommy, Tommy made a face like I said the wrong thing. I thought <laughs> I thought I turned my mic off or something. <laughs> this concrete and terrible things coming our way made me laugh. <laughs> what's happening? Uh, so keep calling your congressional office. Also, ask when they're holding their town halls and their constituent meetings. Someone had this idea on Twitter yesterday. Yeah. I thought that was great. Uh, and then show up. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down. Not do what generations of New Englanders have done. Just stuff their feelings down. Maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No. You got to talk to someone. You got to work it out. Get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P-S-A.
I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Okay, so speaking of organizing and protesting, John Lewis, American hero, civil rights legend, uh, congressman from Georgia, was interviewed by Chuck Todd. And he was asked about Donald Trump and working with Donald Trump. And John Lewis said the following. I don't see this president-elect as a legitimate president. I think the Russians participated in helping this man get elected, and they helped destroy the candidacy of Hillary Clinton. I don't plan to attend the inauguration. It will be the first one that I've missed since I've been in Congress. You cannot be at home with something that you feel that is wrong, is not right. John Lewis and about 10 Congress people are boycotting the inaugural. I think it's gone up since. Has it gone up since yeah, then? Yeah, I think Probably the, more. I think it's above 20. We got above 20 now? Okay. So a lot of Democrats are, or a handful of Democrats, a dozen Democrats are boycotting uh, the inauguration. It didn't take long. I mean, you could just, you, you just knew when you saw John mm-hmm. Lewis say that, that you were like counting down the, counting down the minutes until yeah. you scrolled through Twitter and saw the Donald Trump yeah. response, I mean, right? He attacked the Pope. Never forget. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, sure enough, Trump tweets, Congressman John Lewis should spend more time on fixing and helping his district, which is in horrible shape and falling apart, not to mention crime infested, rather than falsely complaining about the election results. I'll talk, 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 no action or results. Sad. I mean, first of all, John Lewis represents Atlanta, which is a major city in the United States. He represents beautiful parts and parts that have problems that other cities have. But he seems to think every African-American represented district is like crime addled and horrible and a disaster. And there's there's a weird pattern here. Yeah, it's I was al- going to say, this isn't the first time. It's yeah. almost as like his mind is a New York Post headline from 1978. <laughs> <laughs> He's like a walking Central Park Five That's ad. all he is. He doesn't have any... He has no information. It's just so gross. It's like, it, you know what? Like, John Lewis had his skull bashed in on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Right. Um, I, to, to, like, you know, for, for voting rights. And for, he, he's, he is a hero. You can't, Of like, course. It, it, the thing that's so frustrating about this is, like, it's so obviously wrong. It's so obviously an evil thing to say. And then you see all these people bending over backwards to kind of demonstrate. And, like, it's such an easy thing to, like, take Donald Trump and he's a hero, sir. How dare you? Which is good. We should be saying that. But, like... We've done this before, this thing of Donald Trump, you know, (laughs) picks a fight with somebody uh, beyond reproach, and then everybody kind of rises to the defense of the person who's beyond reproach, and we just kind of do it again. Yeah, I mean, no one one is immune to criticism, but to tee off like this on someone for expressing their opinion, like, listen, if John Lewis doesn't think the election is legitimate, that's his opinion. But then you have, the the way they circle the wagons is so bizarre. You had Rance Priebus on ABC this week saying that it's on Obama to get all his, tell his people to, quote, grow up and respect the results of the election, which is like such an absurd 
response. You know, maybe yeah. it's on your president to grow the fuck up and to stop tweeting about SNL every time he gets pissed off about it. Well, I mean, this is the thing. This is the thing. First of all, we're going to get Tommy to say Reince at some point. Like, it's going to happen. Second. <laughs> no, I uh, won't. <laughs> uh, second, like, look, we can do this thing where Donald Trump says something repellent and everybody kind of piles on. Or we can ask ourselves why he pays no price and views it as positive for him. And really, like, the people that are responsible for that are Reince Priebus, Sean Spicer, the people that are around him directly. Also, people like Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and other allies who have, you know, made this dirty deal and sold their souls uh, to back this guy. Uh, and... Uh, when Donald Trump spouts off like this, you know, we can make fun of him and criticize him, but like he just is shameless and valueless. So it doesn't really matter. It's about the people that are enabling him. That's all. Although I do think, I mean, someone, someone from the LA times tweeted that, you know, like John Lewis knew exactly what he was doing. He's protested his whole life. And when you say something like this, you get people, right. You, you bring some yeah. energy and enthusiasm to the cause. Yeah. And I, like you just mentioned, love it, that the boy, that the number of congressmen boycotting the, inaugural has gone up since then. So people do take a cue from at least on John Lewis's side of the equation here. Yeah. Even if, like you said, you know, shaming Donald Trump is impossible because man has no shame. Yeah. Um, so our friend David Axelrod uh, was asked about this and he said, I'm not comfortable with Lewis calling Trump illegitimate, adding the greatest triumph for Russia would be to legitimate their charges about our democracy. I worried about our institutions. I worry that we're in this mad cycle of destruction. I understand the outrage, but where is this all going? So I understand on one, on one side, like, this is a time to protect institutions, particularly because, and norms, particularly because Donald Trump does not care about them that much and has seemed to broken some, he's, he's broken so many norms and, you know, not cared about institutions. But at the same time, I don't know, desperate times? <laughs> well, look, first, <laughs> to not point out the fact that Russia influenced our election doesn't change that fact, right? Like, it's it, it has it has the order of events backwards, like... Pointing out that Russia interfered doesn't delegitimize Donald Trump. The fact that Russia interfered delegitimizes Donald Trump. I mean, I think this word legitimate has a lot of different things to it. That like, seems to be part of the problem here. It's like, what does legitimate truly mean right, in this like, context? He is certainly certified by the Electoral College. Right. He, is he won legal. the election in, a legal, in a legal sure. way. Sure. And, and Russia, and look, as long as we, as we take at face value the idea that Russia didn't actually hack voting, but so much hacked the minds of American voters, they ultimately made this decision regardless of where that influence came from. So in that sense he's legitimate uh but at the same time i don't really think that matters you know i i what i what convinced me about what john lewis said wasn't the part about whether whether donald trump is legitimate or not it's about supporting something you don't feel at home with and and that to me is like the central question like do you feel comfortable standing there and being part of the pomp and circumstance that's endorsing donald trump as our president i don't know that i'd want to attend that as a member of congress and say um that say that i am uh, supporting this person as my president. I don't know. I don't look, know. It's a hard decision. I don't want to get to a point where people are boycotting an inauguration because they disagree with someone's position on health care. But I think we have to recognize that this is an extraordinary circumstance Absolutely. for Donald Trump. It's different. It's back to the, you know, we're all annoyed because it was like used to death and cliche, like don't normalize this. This isn't normal. But it's really not. <laughs> right. You know, and so I think a response that says I'm not going to go to that inaugural is warranted. You know, Hamilton Nolan uh, was a writer for Gawker. He wrote a very short, very strong piece in Deadspin. De- Deadspin. Deadspin. John <laughs> literally spit out his water. <laughs> in Deadspin, uh, basically that says don't kiss the ring. And uh, I really think it's worth reading and it really stuck with me. And the basic point he makes is, you know, this is not a this is not a battle of ideas. This is going to be a fight for civic society. And part of that is going to be recognizing uh, when it's time to 
not respect Donald Trump's authority because he's already abusing it in so many different ways. You know, this is a vice grip we're going to be in for a long time, which is we believe in these democratic norms. We believe in these democratic institutions. And so how do you defend them against an adversary who is going to use them when he sees fits and abandon them when he sees fits? He's he sees fit. He's already doing that on conflicts of interest, on having members of his family be part of his administration. I mean, he's going to be breaking the Constitution on day one. So when he doesn't care about uh, the laws and norms, he breaks them. When he wants them, when he wants the pomp and circumstance, he's going to say, how dare these congressmen not respect my institutional authority? So it's up to us to recognize moments where we're going to say, you know what? If you're going to abandon norms, we're not going to respect the norms that give you power based purely on the job that you've uh, won here, I guess. I don't know what that means, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, no, and, and it's worth saying uh, on Martin Luther King Day that Martin Luther King and people in the civil rights movement were not seen as uh, legitimate or like they were seen as radicals. They were criticized. They were called troublemakers. I saw somewhere today that Strom Thurmond, after King was assassinated, called him an outside agitator bent on stirring things up. Oh, my up. God. Yeah. What a horrible person. I mean, but that, that so just to I mean, give you a think, right now we look back on Martin Luther King Day and think, oh, it must have been so popular and embraced to be in the civil rights movement, you know, yeah, because it's, pretty it's optimistic. like, right, like his, <laughs> history becomes whitewashed about that. But like, in, in reality, it was extraordinarily hard to be part of those protests because you were seen as anti-American and outside the mainstream. And I see those uh, I see those Republican members of Congress who endorse Donald Trump tweeting how how much we have to honor Martin Luther King supporting Donald Trump. You might as well be tweeting that while peeing on Martin Luther King's statue. Give me a break. Give me a break. Oh, I we today we celebrate <laughs> Tommy, Tommy's eyes just went wide Today open. <laughs> we celebrate the virtues of Martin Luther King, which is why I endorse Donald Trump and I'm tearing this country down to back a racist so we can cut marginal tax rates for my wealthy buddies. You Goons, straight shooter, respected on all sides. <laughs> straight shooter, widely respected on all sides. <laughs> Guys, you know, little side note: merch coming soon. <laughs> merch coming very soon. Uh, one more thing to end on this: um, Have you guys noticed that Donald Trump is not just because these congressmen are boycotting? He's having a bit of a hard time filling the seats in his inauguration right now. <laughs> so yeah. apparently, there, there's there, there's permits for only for 200 buses for the inauguration. By contrast, uh, Obama had 3,000 buses for permitted, and also the March on Washington, which is the day after the Women's March on Washington, which is the day after the inaugural. There's permits for 1,200 buses. Yeah, you're also seeing ads for potentially for seat fillers, allegedly. I don't know. I can't confirm them. Um, Fake news, maybe. The, the, the whole thing Very is... careful about libel here at uh, Pod Save America. <laughs> Very careful. I mean, you know, listen, I don't want to stand outside in the freezing cold on a January day in Washington, D.C., but I do think this is the kind of thing that's going to show a lack of enthusiasm for Donald Trump's presidency, and it's going to drive him crazy. It's almost as though he has a 37% approval rating, the lowest of any uh, incoming <laughs> president uh, in recent memory. Weird. What's Weird. not matter, though? Um, if you do end up going to the inaugural, though, and you need some last-minute attire, may we suggest Indochino suits? These are great. Let's back to these. Okay, let's go to So in the New York Times, Nick Kristof has a column where he asks, is our new president a Russian poodle? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yesterday, Trump did a round of interviews with foreign press where he just continued this very odd, alarming, ominous embrace of Russia. Uh, Tommy, you want to walk us through some of the highlights? Yeah, I, I mean, he, he talked to um, a, a, a newspaper out of the UK and one out of Germany. And, and one of the things he said was that he thinks, he said NATO is obsolete because they're not fighting terrorism, which first of all, is just, that's factually wrong. I mean, th- that has been their primary mission since 9-11, starting in Afghanistan, but they also do training missions in countries all across the world. But, you know, that kind of comment, which he's made during the campaign, is scaring the shit out of our European allies, because 
NATO was founded in 1949 as a bulwark against Soviet aggression. I think it's easy for us with the benefit of two big oceans surrounding our country and keeping us away from Russia to forget about that threat. But if you're in in Latvia or Ukraine or Poland or Finland, you're very worried about Russian aggression. And so, you know, when you combine that with his comments of cheerleading Brexit and, and the breakup of the EU, and then he started talking about giving Russia sanctions relief for arms control reductions, which is it's a very weird comment because um, arms control treaties are usually negotiated in a reciprocal fashion, meaning like you reduce your stockpile of nuclear weapons, Russia, and we'll reduce ours, the United States. He's essentially saying to them, the sanctions we have on you for hacking our election or for invading Ukraine uh, can go away if you'll for the cost of 100 nukes or whatever it might be. I mean, it's, it's it's inviting more Soviet aggression in the region. And you already have, you know, leaders in Britain, leaders in France, leaders in Germany speaking out and, and scared to death. Can we do a quick, Tommy, um, why Putin's awful? I think I feel like sometimes this gets lost. It's like, you know, we're worried about Russia. Why is he embracing Russia? And and some people might say, well, why isn't it an OK thing to have better relations with Russia? Like, what's so bad about them? You know? Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's not a bad thing to have better relations with Russia. It's something President Obama tried to do. A number of presidents have tried to do sort of reset relations. But I think you need we need to do it in a way where we're not uh, selling out our allies in Europe or, you know, sort of creating these deals that sound good in theory, but in practice don't mean anything. For example, it would be great if we had more uh, support from the Russians in terms of dealing with ISIS. But I don't think that we want to just give them carte blanche to go after um, ISIS in Syria in a reckless fashion, totally indiscriminate, without any regard for civilian casualties, the way they've done in places like Chechnya and the others, because that leads to um, helps ISIS recruit. Uh, and I think in the long term, it will be bad for us. So there's a lot of there's places where we can align strategically, but they view us as a threat. Uh, and they, Russia and Putin believe that by diminishing the U.S., he can prop up Russia. And, and Putin's an autocratic thug, right? That. I yeah, mean, he I mean, murders... like <laughs> He kills his opponents. He kills... You know, they, they go after journalists. Um, they've cracked down on human rights. I mean, the values are not aligned here. Uh, and He's we need Bashar al-Assad, like, commit a near genocide in Syria, right? Yeah, and Trump kind of brushed past that in one of the interviews. He's like, yeah, I mean, what, what he's done in Aleppo is terrible. It's like, well, you know, He's not talking about any sort of consequences for that, or, or he's never criticized him. You know, right? He's criticized SNL like 11 times on Twitter, but he's never said a word yeah. about Putin. I mean, I, I want to not be alarmist about this, but like you just keep reading these stories about Russia. Like Israelis newspa- uh, Israeli newspapers report that American intelligence officials warned Israel to be careful about sharing classified info with the Trump White House for fear it would be given to Russia. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, and then there's the potential, we learned the potential FBI invest- investigation into contacts between the Trump campaign and Moscow. Um, we know that the FBI sought a FISA warrant to look at phone calls between the Trump campaign and Russia. I mean, back to the legitimacy conversation, I still believe if if there is an investigation that finds that Trump people on the Trump campaign were in touch with Russian counterparts during the campaign and knew of the hacking, I mean, that's Watergate. That's worse than Watergate. That's helping a foreign adversary, you know, yeah, I mean, the, steal information. It's, it's to, illegal. Commit espionage. Imagine, imagine 
what Paul Ryan and the congressional Republicans would be doing if this were the Democrat with these kind of close ties to Russia, behaving as if you're compromised by there Russia. There would be impeachment hearings right now. It's in so so again, we're back into this place where like all this new stuff that's coming about coming out, you know, all these interviews Trump is giving, all these things Trump is saying, they are the logical conclusion of what he's been saying for basically six months. It is now the concrete and terrible version because he's about to become our chief policymaker uh, again. When Trump is behaving as though he is under the thumb of a foreign despot, we have to ask ourselves, why is he paying no political price for it? And the reason he is not is because Paul Ryan wants to cut the top marginal tax rate and he has sold out our country to do it. And we have to keep the pressure on the people that are enabling this devious and despicable man to uh, say these things with impunity. Who may have slightly more shame than Donald Trump. Right. Right. There are still people who have shame. Members of his cabinet will have shame. Uh, members of the Congress will have shame. I, d- I believe that Reince Priebus has successfully killed the part of himself that experiences shame. <laughs> I think that he, it finally happened somewhere like sort of right before Christmas. He I, killed it dead. But I mean, otherwise, they still got some shame over there. It, you know, listen, we, he said, you know, he, he sort of played footsie with Putin for a while and we've criticized him for that. But, you know, now you're sort of seeing it play out and what that means in policy terms. And the yeah. fact that, you know, Putin is managing to divide us from our Europe. European allies because of these comments from Trump about NATO and, and, and about sanctions relief. It's a huge problem. And it's it's just antithetical to like decades of foreign policy, you know, thinking, I don't want to say thinking because it sounds like conventional wisdom, but, you know, you have Jim Mattis going up there testifying who's going to be Donald Trump's secretary of defense. And he says NATO is central to our defense. I mean, this is seen as an essential, most successful alliance in all, of all time. And I don't understand why he thinks otherwise. On the other hand, the last time Russia and the U.S. <laughs> allied and then marched on Berlin kind of worked out well for us. Man, we won that I one. I can't. I'm not even going there. <laughs> little humor. Dive in. Little World, War, little World War II humor. Okay. When we come back, we will have senior editor of the Daily Beast and the host of Girl Friday podcast, Aaron Ryan. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to our show, Pod Save America. Don't forget to check out our website, getcrookedmedia.com. All kinds of good content. We'll also be coming out with more podcasts, more shows, more everything. More everything. <laughs> more everything. Please also follow us on Twitter, at Pod Save America, at Crooked Media, at John Favs, at John Lovett, at TVTOR08, and at Dan Pfeiffer. I should probably get that at Tommy Vitor someday, huh? Do it. <laughs> Bye. With us today, we have the senior editor of The Daily Beast and host of the podcast Girl Friday, Aaron Gloria Ryan. Aaron, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me, guys. Thanks for coming on. So we have a question. We'd like to start off our, our conversations, which is, uh, how are you feeling? <laughs> Trump is president. How's it, how's um, it, uh, how's it treating I, you? I, I tweeted this yesterday, and, it's, and I realized that it was articulating something I've been thinking a lot. Almost every time I make a decision, it's a decision between an activity that will make me infuriated or will calm me down. <laughs> um, and it's been that way since November 9th. So you've been um, off Twitter for I, a I'm, while then? I'm sort of, <laughs> I'm trying to lean into the, the pain because I feel as though we have to pay attention to what's going on even more than ever. But I also feel like I'm going crazy and I need to step back and take a deep breath every once in a while. You dropped acid and went to CES. What was more (laughs) surreal, that experience or our current political situation? Uh, How is that analogous to this current? It actually made more sense than almost anything that has happened (laughs) in the last couple of months. Um, I had never done that before. I'd never done any hallucinogens or, or psychedelic drugs or at, at all. So that was a, a really strange and singular experience. Um, 
it ended up being very pleasant. I wouldn't ever advocate for people to do drugs like that. Just Nor would the I, show, what? for legal reasons. Nor would we at the show. I just want to say that for legal reasons. <laughs> yeah, Maybe one third of the show. Don't do it. I really think I threaded the needle and got lucky with that specific experience. Um, it, it was... Um, one thing that I liked about that was that a show that's a consumer electronics show has this sort of endearing optimism to it in the light of, of what's happening um, on our national and our international uh, politics. Um, it almost seemed like cutely, ende- yeah, it was really endearing. It was like, oh, you guys think that there is going to be a world in five years, and in five years we'll all have smart kitchens yeah. that will text <laughs> us at work. And isn't that nice that you I, think that there's going to be something? It's they, like they haven't been when you have attention. a conversation in a relationship with, you know, and it's, and it's kind of on the, on the decline, and you talk about going on vacation together, and you have this momentary little balm in your soul. That's oh, man. that's CES. I just don't. Uh, <laughs> I'm, just, capitalism. I'm just not convinced that a smart fridge is going to get us over the finish line here as a country. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I think first I, I'm I'm a real luddite. I don't like technology, um, and I and I don't really like being around people who get really dorky about it because it's just it, it makes me feel like I need to take a shower. And they're just a bunch of nerds, you know. Oh yeah, they're a bunch of nerds with a sense of self-importance <laughs> who have decided that consuming things and creating things are the same thing, uh, and they're not. So uh, yeah, it was it was like I don't I don't believe in like a smart home. I don't want my coffee maker to know when I get home from work. <laughs> Why? Why? My, my house is fine. I don't need any of this stuff. Um, but at the same time, it was it it was a little bit. I left the experience of, of tripping on acid at this show thinking, okay, well, there are a lot of people that are pretty sure that the world's not going to end, so maybe I could live in that headspace more. Silver lining. Yes. Yeah. I, I also just, we're like, we're all reading about Compromat every day, and then and then Amazon and Google are like, here, bug your own home. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Google. Yeah. Thus concludes the Alexa. fuck you Silicon Valley segment of our so we wanted to get your thoughts on the Trump administration considering evicting the press corps uh, from the West Wing. Yeah, I'll, I'll walk everybody through. So when you guys see, to our listeners at home, when you see uh, President Obama speaking in the briefing room or the press secretary, what people don't necessarily understand is the other side of that wall is actually an office space. That's actually where my office was. It's called Lower Press. And then the reporters can walk through a door all day long to go into Lower Press, to go up to Upper Press and, and see the press secretary. They bump into senior officials. They see people coming and going from the West Wing. It's a great way to sort of keep an eye on the place. Um, the Trump people are talking about moving the press corps out of the West Wing into the EEOB, which is an adjacent but separate building, which would, you know, the spin on it is it would allow more reporters into the press briefing room. Uh, That doesn't mean those people are going to get a question. It just means they're in the room. But it, you know, in practice, it will severely limit their access to the to the White House staff um, and their sort of ability to get a read on the building when something happens. So we're just wondering, you know, do you have a strategy that you're taking to covering this White House or that you would recommend to reporters who are starting in, on Friday? Oh my gosh, I would be the wrong person to ask about this because I my the way that I cover things is mostly I take a step back and I make fun of it until <laughs> it hurts a little less. That's good. Um, but I, I, I think what is really interesting about this new administration, and we saw it in his um, press conference last week, which was just crazy. It was like Ringling Brothers' last circus. Um, it was during his press conference. He had his his tax attorney go up and explain 
uh, in extremely vague and not specific terms how it wasn't possible for him to totally divest and, and to, un, like, to disentangle himself from, from his potential conflicts of interest. But she used these words. So I used to work in financial services before I was a writer. And, you know, I'm not a, I don't really think about it very much anymore, but she used words that somebody uses when they just assume that the audience is stupid right. and not going to understand anything that they're saying. Um, it's like getting in an argument with uh, a person who's taken a one-year philosophy and assumes <laughs> that you know less than them. I, was so that I noticed guy. that, like, Thanks in the spin on, on, on moving uh, the press room to this other building, you know, like you mentioned, the, you know, the, the, the spin has been this will give more people access. This will give more people access. And it depends on people being ignorant, which is why I've been thinking lately um, about how important it is for people to um, pay more attention, even though it hurts. Because the only way that that lie is effective is if you don't know that the previous arrangement gives people more access and awareness of what's going on. Mm -hmm. The way that that works, the way that that line works, is if the general public doesn't know that that's the case. Well, and, and of course, Spicer, uh, his first comment was, Sean Spicer's comment was, well, we just want additional capacity to accommodate members of the media, including talk radio bloggers and others, because there's so many people who want... Yeah, yeah we need... Birth Certificate Radio needs a seat in the, <laughs> the, seat in the living room. <laughs> there's not enough stupid people here. We need to make room for everybody. It's a big, it's a big tent. Are you going to get credentialed now? Do you think you're going to be part of this I new crowd? I for credentials, but I, I would honestly rather drop acid in Las Vegas every single weekend than spend more time than I need to in the Trump White House. Is that much different, do we think? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. It depends on where Peter Thiel is. <laughs> that's, that's true. Oh, my gosh. That's a little bit of a sore spot for me since I, I came up through Gawker. Um, for sure. So, you know, you said your your general take on reporting is to step back and make fun of things. I'm wondering, I mean, do you think that satire is going to play an even bigger role? I mean, what's the balance between sort of giving Trump a pat on the head and, and ripping him to shreds on SNL? Like, where do you, where do you strike yeah. that balance? Well, I think there's a place for... for serious and thoughtful engaging in what is actually happening and uh, stepping back and laughing at the thing that's actually happening. One thing that I noticed, um, and I'm from a rural county in Wisconsin originally that went two to one for Trump, I think, this election. And one thing that I that I noticed about the, the Trump voters there was that they're a population of people who are sick and tired of getting laughed at. For better or for worse, like they, they pro- a lot of people who, you know, are in that demographic deserve to be laughed at because they like crappy art. They listen to crappy music, as we can see from the inauguration concert lineup. They just don't have any. They don't have any taste, and they're tired of being made fun of for not having any taste. And Hope Trump is like the, the person who <laughs> kind of, you know opened up his oversized suit and was like, look, no, 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 it's fine. You guys are fine. We're not laughing at you. We're laughing at, you know, we're, we're sick and tired of it. And I think um, satire maybe played an outsized role in the last cycle because people used it as a, as a way to not engage with the actual facts. Like they would get their news from The Daily Show instead of actually reading the source material, which I think is, is fun and a little bit easier than actually taking news in uh, directly because it can be a little dry and, and it requires effort and thought and not just sitting back and laughing. Um, but I think it's more important than ever to kind of balance that out a little bit. So in long story short, I'm part of the problem. <laughs> well, no, but I think... I think um... I don't, I don't think you are. But uh, also, I think that uh, I, I feel like there's like, I think satire, I think you're right in, in sort of your critique of the way satire has been sort of treating our politics. But I don't think it's the fault of like, of of the approach of let's make fun of what's broken in the news. I think that there's this this sort of liberal thing that's going on right now that's about like, 
what we're making fun of is that people just don't get the real facts. Like they just don't get what's really going on. And I think people kind of resent that, right? Like there's like, it's, um, I don't think I'm making a good point. No, me either. I do think there's a point where like, <laughs> satire can be incredibly condescending. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a sentence that you should all punch me in the face for uh, when I finish. Malcolm Gladwell did a podcast on how, <laughs> oh, how, um, how satire backfired when it was used against Margaret Thatcher and in some ways against Palin. Because at some point along the way, they're, they're brought in on the joke. And it just kind of like it divorces you from the real problems of Sarah Palin not knowing what the hell she's talking about to kind of like goofing on her accent. Uh, and maybe that's a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that is, is not I, I don't I don't think you're wrong at all. I think but I also think that, like I said, that truly understanding an issue requires a little bit of effort. And laughing at somebody, like someone, I don't know, Jeff Sessions, for example, to me, looks like three Keebler elves in a trench coat. Like, that's funny <laughs> as an observation, but it doesn't really engage me with, like, what his record right. is. And, and, you know, I don't, I'm not super well-versed in what he's doing and what he's done and why he's so abhorrent to so many people. You know, so if I were a layperson, part of my job as a voter and a, and a participant in democracy would be to educate myself about this person rather than just take the shortcut and laugh at them. Because I think in an ideal world, the laughter is, is more fulfilling and funnier because of what a uh, what his record has been. Well, I was going to say, the, the satire sort of has to be on message, right? Like the satire mm-hmm. about Trump has to be how he's screwing a bunch of people, not how he has bad taste, right? Because you don't want him to be able to say, you're not just making fun of me, you're making fun of my voters. Mm-hmm. You want to sort of separate him from the voters. Right, right. It's, it's just, it's... It can't be like a satire of aesthetics, which is like too often what it is. Yeah, no, I, I agree. But but also that's that's the easiest thing. And I think people are a little bit lazy sometimes. Um, and, and that's a shame. So you said that you've been trying to strike the balance between paying attention too much and then ignoring it all so that you don't freak out. Where have you sort of landed on that? Have you, <laughs> <laughs> what's um, what's your regimen? I have to do it. You know, like when you have a knee injury? And you have to alternate. Some people say alternate hot and cold. Mm-hmm. I have to do that. I can't really go halfway one or one way or another. So, you know, I will uh, go to the gym and listen to Meet the Press as I run. Ugh, that's um, awful. I know. You can't run nice. fast I get all my, my horribleness in one place. So, right, smart. Um, I'll do that, and then you know I'll go home and I'll watch Rick and Morty for six hours. Um, and not at all look at Twitter. So that, that's sort of the way that I've been handling it. It's like, you know, a few hours on, a few hours off, a few hours on, a few hours off. And, I, and I've been reading a lot of fiction, um, although Don DeLillo is maybe not the best choice. Uh, but I have been reading a lot of fiction. Uh, so when I'm not reading the news or not trying to catch up on the news, I'm trying to take in the beauty of things that aren't of and related to Donald Trump. I also like at dinner now went like with friends if like Donald Trump comes up it's like hey you know we don't need to talk about yeah, Donald Trump next. like we can have like a discipline of some other conversations I know oh, when family? I was home over Christmas my dad um because you know my my family they're not in the media and my father just kept wanting to talk to me about you know the election and how upset he was about it and I was I finally had to say like dad I can't <laughs> I can't do this like you're ruining Christmas <laughs> I can't, I can't talk about this anymore 
I get a lot of people saying, you know, talking about it, and they're like, you must be sick of talking about this because you talk about it all the time. And I was like, well, I'm sort of resigned. I'm like, no, that's my life. That's the path I've chosen. So I deserve right. it. Bring yeah. it on. It's an obsession. Right, <laughs> yeah. And girlfriends from college of mine, none of, none of them are in the media either. And they are, they're all sort of like, oh, you know, it's, it's nice. I'm, I'm just going to not pay attention to the news anymore. And it's, uh, <laughs> wouldn't that be nice? I, I, I would love it if I could step back and, and not pay attention to the news. But, you know, like you said, it's the job I picked. It's the job you picked. Yeah, I mean, we're three guys that just sort of looked at this and said, "More, we have more, please." <laughs> <laughs> Look, we have a republic to save. You know, that's and, and it's us. Awesome. Our tweets are going to do it. Our podcasts are going to do one it. One podcast at a time. <laughs> we're like five podcasts away from getting Trump to realize Figuring what a jerk he is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Aaron Ryan, thank you so much for uh, for joining us, and uh, and everyone, check out uh, Aaron's podcast, Girl Friday. It's great. Anything and else about CES? It was great. Thanks on the Daily Beast. Thanks, thanks, thanks Aaron. for coming on. Bye. Bye. You're listening to Pod Save America. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. You're listening to Pod Save America. Special guest today on the pod, we have former senior advisor to Hillary Clinton, Philippe Rhinus. Uh, Philippe, welcome to the program. Thank you. How are you guys? Great. We're great. We're great. So uh, Everything's going well. <laughs> everything's fine. <laughs> so we're really excited to have you on. The reason we wanted to talk to you is because there was this big story in Politico that everybody should read, uh, and it's rare that we say that about Politico. <laughs> uh, uh, Think about uh, it from my end. I've been telling everyone, like, Politico's got this great story about <laughs> <laughs> But uh, it's a long piece looking at uh, Philippe's experience playing Donald Trump in debate prep, and everybody should read it because it's called fascinating. The Man Who Became Donald Trump, Annie Carney in Politico. And uh, we were excited to talk to you. I was excited to talk to you because, you know, Philippe, we, we've known each other for a long time, and there's been a lot written about you, but I don't think anyone has ever to this moment really captured how obsessive you get about things. And uh, I think it's fair to say you got a little bit obsessive about playing Donald Trump, right? <laughs> well, you guys are out in California and Hollywood. I mean, that's what you're supposed to do, right? You're supposed to immerse yourself, take <laughs> it very method, seriously. Actually. Yeah, you're the Daniel. Actually, I you're did, the Daniel Day um, Lewis. Of I this. did get obsessive, or I did apply my usual obsessiveness to it. Um, a lot of it was just for my own head. I mean, it's not like if I didn't wear knee pads to hold my leg straight, she would have said he doesn't look like Donald Trump. <laughs> but it was just a good reminder for me that it was sort of a constant. You know, remember the role I was playing. So 
Philippe, I mean, I sat in a, you and I used to work together very closely when you were a spokesman at the State Department and I was at the NSC. And I, w- I remember going to see, uh, do a lot of interview preps with you and Hillary Clinton. And it seemed like your primary job was to piss her off as much as possible during the practice so that it didn't happen in uh, at the main event. Was that kind of your goal here during debate prep? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it worked, but it was it was a lot of fun. I mean, that was, my goal in life was just to antagonize her. Um, <laughs> You know, if it, if, it had, if it had a great byproduct of, you know, my job getting done uh, while I was at it. I think, look, we've all worked for principles. We've all worked for people who, uh, you know, every word they say is is really pulled apart. You don't want them blurting everything on the top of their tip of their tongue out in an interview uh, or in a debate or even in a, in a meeting, in a conversation in their office. Um, they have staff, they have people like us, oftentimes to say what they can only say to us, to uh, get it off their chest, and frankly, just to talk things out so they can, you know, they can work through in their own head where they are on something. And I think that was the process. Look, you guys know, you've all been on debate preps, and uh, you know, a lot of the same people in the same uh, team, you know, hers was run by Ron Klain and Karen Dunn, um, who did President Obama's in 2012, too. They're just remarkable. I've They're been the best. For a long time. The but best. seeing them in this context was just actually unbelievable. They're scary smart. They were on a great process. And honestly, you know, things didn't exactly go as planned, but not because of the debates. The debates <clears throat> hopefully will stand out as well. What, what was the... Stand out. No one's going to remember them. <laughs> <laughs> no, they will. I mean, look, she won three debates. I mean, it, you know, in the end... Uh... It's a small comfort, but still it happened. <laughs> Philippe, what was yeah. the process? Now, in hindsight, I think, with a lot of things, but I, I, had she won, I think there would have been an element of the debates having sealed the deal. Oh, yeah. Um, and it would have been a, a big part of it would have been because people had a good shot of seeing her um, and all the psychobabble of who is she, we don't get to see her, she's this, she's that. So it, it not only would have been just very rewarding, it would have been a very, I think, um, sort of important way for her to have won. And they were good opportunities, and you know it was uh, all for naught. <laughs> <laughs> Philippe, what was the process of getting inside Donald Trump's head? What did you do, and and how fucked up did it make you for uh, af- after did, it was all said I and done? I did what I do best, which was watch an an enormous amount of television. Um, <laughs> I just I watched him over and over and over. And first of all, it's not like the whole country wasn't watching, especially people like us. You're watching a little bit more than. Than usual, and look, frankly, it's not. It wasn't solving Rubik's cube. I mean, <laughs> he has some pretty um, predictable patterns. In fact, I shouldn't say some. I mean, he is one big predictable pattern. Um, what was tough, and I've never done this before, so I, I don't know. I shouldn't say tougher or less tough, but you know, if you're practicing, if you're running debate prep with President Obama in 2012, and Someone's pretending to be Candy Crowley and saying, uh, "Okay, Mr. President, Governor Romney, we're now going to talk about Medicare." You, you then have a, a fakey, fakey exchange for 15 minutes about Medicare. He, I mean, there's one great snippet that to me really summed him up from the debates and the primaries, where he got pressed on Social Security three times, and the way he got out of it on the third time was that he within 17 seconds, went from Social Security to uh, Kim Jong-un. And <laughs> Obvious. it's not helpful to do that in a practice setting. 
it's not helpful to when you're trying to think through, you know, economic answers or social justice or Syria to every 45 seconds start ranting and raving about, you know, bleach bit and her hammering her phones and being in jail. So, you know, I think the harder thing to do is actually to try to debate because he doesn't bother to. So one of the things you said in this story is that uh, he is predictably unpredictable. And I think Unpre- that uh, yeah. <laughs> unpredictably predictable, predictably unpredictable, it doesn't really matter. It's hard to know what predicted. the No, it's a huge difference. All right, fine. It's a huge difference. Well, whatever you said. Don't, don't get into the fake news. <laughs> Love it doesn't uh, read the quoting news. Quoting whatever you want to think. I, I think it was he's the most predictable, unpredictable person. Sure, great. That's, that's what I was getting at. Uh, I think that's something people have come to a lot, which is that in hindsight, after he says something, you sort of realize, oh, that's obviously what he would say to protect his ego, to kind of defend his narcissism. But in the moment, it's really hard to figure out what he's going to do. So how did you wrap your head around that problem of this predictably unpredictable person? Huh, that's a good question. Um, well, I don't think I had to go much further than what you just described, because the first thing is always, you know, about him. Uh, did you say something or did you do something that uh, that he would consider, you know, a challenge to him to to his experience, to his abilities, which pretty much he experiences every word that way. And look, especially in a debate, uh, in these debates where not just the opponents, but the, the moderators, there's a lot of it was, you know, Mr. Trump, you said this 10 years ago. Mr. Trump, we heard a recording of you saying this yesterday. So it was very much within the framework of, Mr. Trump, you are a bad person. Tell us why you did not screw up. Um, and that, and that's where he's most predictable. But in, in general, I mean, he's, again, I think it's funny, you know, you, I'm sure you watch as much TV as I do. Everyone's trying to figure out who he's going to pick for this slot. What does that mean? You know, when is he going to reveal his plans for X? This idea that things are going to settle out, that, you know, campaign was all big show, Transition is sloppy, but, you know, taking it more seriously and that suddenly just going to wake up one day and things are going to be even remotely akin to any kind of uh, uh, plan is a lot of things, but it's naive. That's just not who he is. So that's not who he's going to be. So then I guess the question is, and I think it's a it's a it's a good idea to look forward. All right. You've embodied this guy. You've kind of figured out the way he approaches problems. What would be the lesson for reporters, for those of us trying to hold him accountable? Uh, uh, how do you how do you box Donald Trump in when you're when you know you've played him? You know what works? Reporters, I think, have a couple of problems. But the solution, I think, you know, the the the, the press conference he held last week. What I was seeing was almost what should have happened should have been the the ending scene in um, in the Robin Williams movie. I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the name where they all stand up on the desks. Captain, my captain. Right. Like, if they don't, if they are not willing to all go down for each other, um, if they do the standard routine, which is uh, of the White House briefing, this isn't just with the president, just with the press secretary, of I'm going to practice my question all day. My question itself is going to be newsworthy in the sense that my network can then say, oh, today X stood up and... Sean Spicer or President Trump would refuse to answer X, that's not going to work. They literally have to get up there with the goal of getting an answer, which sounds incredibly 
obvious, but I don't, look, you guys have worked in the White House, I never have. I don't think that's what goes on. The, the, no, the prancing no. and the sort of the, the drama of it is not geared to get an answer. It's geared towards Good to getting you. at least something for television. And every day, I think they almost have to go, they all have to embody either you know Jake Tapper or Chris Matthews. They all have to add up because if, if you think if you look at the interviews he's done, you know one with Jake, of where with the David Duke fiasco, and I think there was one other in the Chris Matthews interview where he said, uh, you know, women should be criminalized uh, for having abortions. Those are two people who just are relentless, and they're not the media together is not going to have a lot of opportunities like that. He's not going to subject himself to difficult interviews where. He's asked something six, seven times. They have to become one giant Jake Tapper at these press conferences. That sounds like a scary version of Ghostbusters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you're right. I thought that with the last press conference, like, no more multi-part questions. Yeah. No, like, what do you think about this where you ask him to play the pundit? Like, it has yeah. to be direct questions that are yes, no, or that force him to an answer. Yeah. And it has to be. And look, in, in, in fairness to him, Anyone you ask multiple part questions to is going to nab which part of it they want. Right, right. I mean, a lot of what he's doing is not, it's not anything our bosses haven't done. The length to which he's doing it and the shamelessness with it. But, you know, there are days, and I can't think of one, but there are days where the, the event of the day has been so overwhelming that you could go to each of the 49 questions in the White House uh, press briefing room and it would be the same topic. That's almost how I think they have to approach it. Mm-hmm. Because this whole thing, any given day, I mean, here's a good example. You think a week from now, everything's going to be settled in. There's only going to be one horrible thing going on a day. He's not going to still have his taxes on, you know, on yeah. release. He's not going to still have X. There's always going to be three, four, five things to latch on to in the course of a day. And that's always going to benefit him. And I don't know why I keep saying him, because 90% of this is going to be Spicer. But... Um, yeah, I think Sean Spicer's in for a couple of uh, rough briefings, which is yep. very good. <laughs> yeah, he seems to be a bit of a sore winner. <laughs> yeah, you know, he doesn't seem to be growing in the role yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Philippe, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And, um, and everyone go read The Man Who Became Donald Trump in Politico to get more of this feel for what it was like to play Donald Trump by Philippe. Thanks, Philippe. Thank Thanks, you Philippe. for having me, guys. I'm going to go yell at someone about something they didn't do. Okay, great. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> That's our show for today. Thank you to Aaron Gloria Ryan and Philippe Reines for joining us. And we'll talk to you on Thursday and see you later. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed.
The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com streaming. netsuite.com streaming.